psychedelics quieten down or temper habitual activity, particularly in the frontal cortex. Our disposition to be perpetually lost in thought, worrying about the future, ruminating about the past. What these compounds do, they take that offline. When that happens, it opens up space for new and distant and other parts of the brain to speak to one another, a process known as neurogenesis. Hey, I'm Mike Stopforth, and this is The One-Eyed Man, a show where I talk to talented people doing meaningful work at the intersections of leadership, technology, and impact. Thanks again to those of you who are return listeners and who've been kind enough to pass shows onto your friends and onto your networks. And if you're here for the first time, thank you and welcome. My guest on this week's show is Brad Kallenbach. Brad is a clinical psychologist and the co-founder of Equanimity Wellness, which is Africa's first psychedelic-assisted therapy center, based right here, actually, in um, Santon. Brad is also the co-founder of Reach, which is in beta right now, a mental health tech app that offers real-time science-based tools for anxiety regulation and emotional mastery. I met Brad so a year and a half ago when he played a really significant role in my own mental health journey as one of the facilitators on a psychedelic-assisted therapeutic retreat that I had the privilege of attending. In this conversation, we talk in depth about developments in mental health care, some of the misconceptions around psychedelics, um, this incredible center that Brad and his colleagues have built right here in Joburg, and much, much more on this really fascinating topic. It is, of course, a topic of significant personal importance to me, as you'll know, and may just be the most important thing you listen to this week or this month, maybe even this year, I hope. And if it does grab you, please feel free to pass it on to other people that will benefit from listening to it. Here's Brad. Cool. So my thinking was, Brad, if you're happy with this, was maybe even to start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. And then as we do that, find little markers on the trail that that we can talk about. But for people that have not been exposed to the center, to equanimity wellness, um, how would you describe it to somebody who is hearing about it or learning about it for the first time? Equanimity wellness is a space for deep healing and recovery and consciousness expansion in a retreat-like setting in the commercial hub of Johannesburg in Santon. Sounds like a a paradox, isn't it? Because Santon's not where I go to feel (laughs) relaxed. How does that work? How do you create that kind of space? Absolutely. Um, This was, I suppose, part of our motivation for creating a a retreat-like healing space that uh, helps people with various afflictions, whether we're talking about depression or chronic anxiety or trauma or addiction, but also for a group of people that we might think of as the worried well, people who are high-functioning and would like to explore deeper purpose and meaning in their life or improve their relationships or deepen their compassion for themselves or, or simply just explore their minds, explore the landscape of their own consciousness. We wanted to create a space for people to access this kind of deep work in a way that is incredibly accessible and Mm. practical. Uh, Previously, we were doing this kind of work in retreat settings, immersive retreat settings, five-day retreats in nature, and we realized that we wanted to bring the power and the magic of psychedelic-assisted therapy 
into a space that people could quickly access because mm. not everyone has the means or the capacity to take five days off and sure. spend that kind of money and travel overseas into a geography where this, this work can be done. Mm. And so we decided to work with a medicine, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which is uh, perfectly legal, perfectly safe, perfectly accessible. And so we built a physical space that does not look like a clinic, uh, a mental all, health yeah. clinic. Yeah. Uh, it certainly looks like it has the natural and organic feel of a retreat setting. Mm. Um, it's it's beautiful. There's a lot of attention to aesthetics, and it's it's incredibly inviting, and it's it's, mm. it's just a conducive space for healing and recovery. So I'm sure we'll talk about the details of what the actual offering is that that we do, but Definitely. that was part of our motivation for for building the space that's awesome i am um, i've been quite embarrassingly catching up well i would not even catching up because i never watched it in the first place but i'm watching the sopranos for the first time yeah. and i'm on season one and really what i didn't ever realize even when people have spoken anecdotally about how much they love the series is how big a topic mental health is in the in the early part of that story and um I found myself surprised, and this is probably an indication of just how much the conversation around mental health journeys and certainly the treatment options around mental health journeys has shifted in the last, let's say, 15, 10 to 15 years. We're talking about tectonic shifts in the stigma around treatment, around therapy, around psychiatry. And then I think around people owning and taking some responsibility for the the work, uh, yes. you know, in inverted commas that you mentioned earlier on and, and acknowledging that I think many of us, more of us than yes. I think we ever realized are on some sort of a um, healing journey. And I, I imagine that change has been reflected in your career as well, because I guess that's how long you've been practicing for. So how have you seen the landscape shift from when you graduated to where, where you know, where the world of, of mental health care is today? Absolutely. Um, when I completed my, my master's degree in clinical psychology back in 2012, this shift towards these sorts of healing modalities was just, just starting to appear in, in the clinical literature. Prior to about 2006, the landscape was quite quiet. Mm. In 2006, a professor of psychiatry named Roland Griffiths released a, a landmark mark paper. It was the first double-blind placebo-controlled study examining the impact of psilocybin mushrooms. Mm. And this was instrumental in creating a revolution in, this, in the mental health space. Mm. Prior to that, for the last 50 years, um, we were arguably in what could be thought of as a kind of a, a dark ages there had been no major advances in about 50 years in psychiatry. And this had to do with the quashing of the research back in the 70s, fueled by Nixon's war on drugs um, and Timothy Leary being public enemy number being one. Timothy and, Leary, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And at the time in the 70s, there was experimentation with LSD and there was enormous excitement in the scientific community. It, it was completely groundbreaking. It was comparable to the smashing of the atom in physics. You know, hmm. Psychiatrists and neuroscientists believed that they were on the brink of understanding the, the building blocks of mental illness. It led to the discovery of serotonin and modern neurochemistry, as we know today. But um, with, uh, un unfortunate, well, fortunately or unfortunately for, for President Richard Nixon, these medicines, they 
deepen empathy. They deepen your sense of interconnection to others. Um, they increase your scores on something called openness to experience. Mm -hmm. And none of this bolstered the narrative for young people at the time that it's a good idea to go and send hundreds of thousands of people across the world to the slaughter world people yeah, in yeah. Southeast Asia. Um, and, and so Nixon realized that these medicines were a threat to his campaign and it all ground to a halt, a screeching halt. And, and from that point on, psychiatry did enter into a kind of dark ages. And only, as I say, in 2006 did Roland Griffiths release, release this landmark paper where he, he, he got ethical permission to run the study. Mm -hmm. And from there, there was an enormous amount of excitement in the therapeutic community and follow-on papers and, and replications and replications and and on and on it went. And slowly this ball started rolling. Now, for myself, you know, back in 2012, I had just started immersing myself in this literature and mm. found it absolutely intriguing, absolutely fascinating. Um, there's no mention of this work in our clinical training, in our clinical programs. Sure. And slowly, slowly, myself and some of my colleagues, we started to really be compelled by the data and found enough courage within ourselves to uh, experiment recreationally in legal settings with some of these medicines. Mm -hmm. And we're just completely astounded at, at the impact that they had on us. Mm. And from there, we started slowly exploring what would it mean to couple psychotherapeutic frameworks with these medicines. Mm. And to cut a long history short, we eventually landed up creating a program, uh, running retreats. And that eventually led to the genesis of us building Equanimity Wellness, uh, where we have refined our framework and... Uh, found a, a safe, legal, accessible way to, to offer this this treatment to people in Johannesburg. Mm. Uh, for listeners that are interested in in understanding a little more of the, some of the history that you alluded to, because it is pretty fascinating to dig into. I, I, I've read um, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind that does a fairly in-depth uh, job of accounting for for some of those reasons um, for for the the break or the the void in uh, progressive research in this space. Um, are there any other resources that have been helpful or instructive that you'd want to point them to if they want to understand the history of psychedelic assisted therapy a bit more? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, Michael Pollan's magisterial blockbuster, how to how to change your mind, fantastic um, introduction into that space. Uh, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide by James Fadiman is a, is, a, is a wonderful resource as well, very accessible. Um, for people who are interested in some of the earlier literature, uh, slightly more literary in, in approach, they could look at um, Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception. Mm -hmm. That can be nicely coupled with Henry James's The Varieties of Religious Experience, uh, which talks about different altered states of consciousness in an incredibly poetic and, and fascinating way. And as for um, literature on ketamine in particular, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talking about, I recommend Phil Wolfson's The Ketamine Papers. A really excellent, accessible, lucid introduction to the medicine and the healing potential of, of ketamine. And, then, uh, and of course, there's all the peer-reviewed literature as well. Which is, for sure. You know, that should keep us busy for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. um, so now we've spoken about, we've spoken about therapy. Uh, we spoke about some of the progressions that have happened in people's attitudes towards the therapeutic journey. And now we're speaking about psychedelic assisted therapy. 
what, what, what the hell is that? What, what are the differences between these two things? And for the sort of lay person on the street, I imagine the word psychedelic will initiate an, a quite visceral response. So how do, you, how do you unpack the differences between those two practices? Absolutely. So just firstly, by, by way of definition, psychedelics are, the, the word psychedelic literally means mind manifesting. Mm-hmm. So psychedelics are organic and synthetic compounds that manifest parts of our minds to ourselves, parts of our minds that are inaccessible to waking consciousness. We might say they manifest unconscious parts of, the, of our, our minds to ourselves. And examples of those would be? Psilocybin. Which is magic mushrooms, right? Yeah. Magic mushrooms, um, LSD, uh, lysergic acid, diethylamide is, is the technical name, ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all considered classic uh, serotonergic psychedelics, psychedelics that work on the serotonin system. Mm-hmm. And there are another class of medicines which are synthetic, like MDMA, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sometimes not co- strictly considered a psychedelic, but, but loosely classified as one. And certainly ketamine, yeah. uh, which is a, a technically a dissociative anesthetic medicine, but at certain dosages induces the wakeful dream type of state that psychedelics induce, uh, which in common parlance is known as a trip. Mm-hmm. And in recreational, excuse me, in therapeutic circles is known, we call it a journey. Mm-hmm. So psychedelic assisted therapy is the use of psychedelic compounds to help facilitate healing and recovery from various afflictions, depression, chronic anxiety, addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder, etc. Now, as for um, some of the core distinctions be- between these two modalities, I like to sometimes use an analogy. If, if we think about the mind as a block of clay, what traditional talk therapy attempts to do is to chip away at that clay while it's dry. And thereby, over time, slowly and arduously and patiently remold the psyche into a more adaptable form. Mm -hmm. What psychedelics do is they don't replace traditional therapy. They catalyze traditional therapy. They accelerate the process. Mm -hmm. So it would be as if you are heating up that clay, rendering the mind more fluid, more pliable, so that it can be remolded far more quickly and far more efficiently um, into into an adaptive form. Psychedelics are certainly not a replacement for therapy. Mm, mm. They are simply a catalyst. Um, as we like to say at Equanimity, the magic isn't in the medicine. It is, in fact, in the therapeutic framework within which the medicine is grounded. An enabler. An enabler, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because my, you know, my experience in just social conversations around certainly my my therapeutic experience and, and some of the journey that you and I have shared over the last um, two years, there's almost two kind of quite distinct responses to the topic of psychedelic assisted therapy in particular. Um, and I, I guess it's almost the same sort of response as you would have got to therapy uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. The one set of responses is, whoa, you're talking about drugs. Right. And there's this sort of immediate association with what, what in many instances are very destructive, uh, recreational drugs. And a lot of people that I guess in their youth would have experimented with the likes of LSD or magic mushrooms might have also experimented with other, in inverted commas, harder, more addictive uh, drugs and, and will have them all lumped into the same, uh, umbrella group of, of, 
just say no <laughs> types of types of of products so there's there's that sort of whoa hold on this this feels very risky it feels like it could be destructive i don't, i wouldn't want to lose control and those are all very uh, understandable and meaningful responses so there's that category mm-hmm. and then there's kind of like another side of the equation which is like the silver bullet side of the equation where there are people that are going Oh yeah, like this will just, this will, this will fix everything. Like just do, just, just do the thing and do it in this dosage and like overnight you'll be fine. And certainly my experience has been neither, neither one of those things. Um, and we can talk about some of the personal experiences a little bit more. My, my experience of, of, uh, ketamine infusions, but my, my sense is that the marriage between intentional therapy and a, really um, balanced um, careful considered understanding and usage of these medicines in the same way that I would use medicine for any uh, ailment um, is extraordinarily powerful but to see them from any one of the extremes may be very limiting um, yes yeah. yes that that's absolutely right there's an enormous distinction between the recreational use of these compounds and the intentional as you said therapeutic use of these compounds in recreational settings, doses aren't regulated. Mm-hmm. There is no screening. There's no preparation. There's mm-hmm. no intention setting. Um, we'll, we can talk more about the power of intention because one thing we know about these compounds is that they are context dependent. They draw on your physical environment, the physical context, and your internal context, your mindset. For sure. And they create an experience. They amplify an experience based on that. And in the absence of of setting meaningful goal-directed intention, um, these these compounds can create unpredictable experiences that that aren't necessarily helpful. So, with with unregulated doses, with no clinical oversight, contaminating these medicines with other substances like alcohol and stimulants, yes, things can go pear-shaped. Sure, and we certainly don't advocate for the recreational use of these compounds we do uh, i really appreciate your use of the word medicine we view them as medicines Mm. as tools for deep healing and deep recovery in of course sorry to derail you very quick but i suppose it's also worth acknowledging that if i mix alcohol with an extremely strong antibiotic that's also not you know it's not going to have great outcomes either so helps to kind of draw the the correlations between what we understand to be traditional medicine that sometimes we have an outlandish amount of trust for and what we're talking about in terms of organic compounds that yeah traditionally have fallen under another set of perceptions exactly so it's a really helpful point um any almost any medicine used out of context in that way can have adverse effects sure and um psychedelics ought not to be disqualified unfairly in in that particular regard what we do know is that when these medicines are used with intention within the right therapeutic framework with screening and preparation with clinical oversight and most importantly with thorough and rigorous integration which is the follow-up therapy these are some of the safest most non-toxic most physically well tolerated substances on earth Mm. And, um, and, and of course, indeed, are the most potent catalysts for healing that, that we know of currently. Um, so context is everything. Absolutely. So before we talk about what a, what a psychedelic assisted therapy journey, um, slash, uh, commitment might look like, what, what are psychedelics actually doing in my head 
and I suppose they're doing the same thing whether I'm taking them recreationally or or, or in the the um, pursuit of medicinal um, uh, improvement in terms of healing. What what is actually happening? mechanically neurologically in my brain um because that seems to be a question that that most people have and i find it quite difficult to answer um i'm not a doctor clearly but you know how do you explain that to the lay person as well essentially what these compounds do quieten down or temper habitual activity activity particularly in the frontal cortex which Mm -hmm. we can think of as the seat of rumination in Mm -hmm. the brain our disposition to be perpetually lost in thought, worrying about the future, ruminating about the past, judging ourselves in the present. Um, this Part of my brain I have a relationship with, basically, the one that I hear on a daily basis, the it, conversation I'm having. That's my frontal cortex. Yeah. Exactly. This, this endless, ceaseless barrage of thought and fragments of language and imagery. Psychedelics take that offline. They quieten it down. When that happens, it opens up space for new and distant and other parts of the brain to speak to one another, Hmm. a process known as neurogenesis. Mm -hmm. There is a a kindling of neural activity across other parts, distant regions of the brain. So so you're, you're activating a globally connected brain state with this explosion of communication across the brain new pathways are formed. Literally new new neural networks are formed in the brain. And that's an intriguing thing because what that results in is an expansion of our emotional range. Uh, we all of a sudden have access to emotional experiences that are typically suppressed in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, those might not always be blissful and positive. Sure. They, they can be. Um, they can induce feelings of awe. Mm. immense gratitude, mm-hmm. um, intense feelings of love that you mm-hmm. simply haven't connected with for, for others, for yourself. But they can also help you access grief mm. and loss and sadness that you need to process. Mm. And this is incredibly healthy. Uh, in fact, this is, this is what we hope to get to in traditional therapy. Sure. So we have this kindling of um, neural pathways, this explosion of communication, new pathways are formed. There's a widening of emotional range. And with the formation of new pathways in this widening emotional range, human beings have the capacity to view situations in their lives, themselves, their past, their traumas, their future, from radically different perspectives. Mm. Something in psychology we call cognitive flexibility, uh, the, the, the ability to perspective shift. And with that comes new insight. Mm epiphanies if you like into yourself into your life into your future into meanings that you can make of past experiences that you haven't been able to access um, into more adaptive creative strategies that you can adopt to meet your fundamental needs as a human being and that essentially is the power and the magic of the psychedelic experience so physiologically, those are some of the things, let's say neuroanatomically, those are some of the things that are happening. Neurochemically, different medicines work via different mechanisms of action. So we mentioned these classic medicines, psilocybin, ayahuasca, LSD, uh, that work on the serotonin system. Something like ketamine works on the glutamate system, which mm-hmm. is another pathway. But the point is that with 
the enormous release of either serotonin or glutamate, there is the release of a fascinating protein in the brain called BDNF, brain-derived neutrophic factor. One can think of this as the fertilizer in the soil of the brain. Hmm. This is the stuff of new neural pathways. So there's this massive cascade, this downstream outpouring of BDNF, which cultivates this neurogenesis, which leads to widening of emotional range, massive perspective shifting, and then hopefully... When we're finished the, the psychedelic journey, we get to the therapeutic part, which we call integration. Hopefully, there's behavior change. Mm. We, we, in fact, action the insights or the epiphanies that we've encountered in the journey. So, there's a literal biological shift. Like, you're actually clearing out clogged up highways. You're creating new connections. You're building new bridges. You're having a direct and meaningful impact on brain infrastructure, right? Absolutely. Uh, is that... That's actually happening. It's not just what's happening in my mind. It's not a no. perceptive thing. It's literally happening. There's, there's, a, there's a concrete physiological change in the brain. Mm. And if we scanned your brain on a psychedelic, in fact, it would look very, very much the way your brain looks during REM sleep. Mm. And uh, that, that's quite fitting because we call the, the journey or the trip a wakeful dream, essentially mm. dreaming with your eyes open. Mm. Um, so, yes, this, this is a physiological change in the brain. And, of course, it goes hand in hand, as you suggested, with a unique phenomenological experience, a subjective experience, uh, which you know, we, can, we can unpack what, what some of that is like as well. Yeah. So, certainly, this is not the only way to achieve some of those outcomes. I mean, obviously, there's been great developments in our understanding of the power of meditation, of breath work. You know, there, there are more than just one means to creating this sort of mental uh, and emotional pliability. I guess the one thing that I wanted to, to revisit just from what you just said is my experience certainly was that if we talk about signal and noise, almost, you know, you spoke about the noise of our sort of frontal cortex and how much our thoughts often happen to us rather than uh, us, us observing them, collaborating with them, whatever it might be. Um, in my worst moments, sort of from a mental health perspective, that is, I, I talk about it almost as a fog, as a, you know, it, it just a can't see the wood for the trees, cannot get past what it is that is happening in my mind. And that's obviously very frustrating and, and debilitating. But there's a sense that there's a lot that's happening on the subconscious whether you are aware of it or not, that you can't access and can't connect with and can't meaningfully engage with because of that noise. So my experience of, of psychedelic-assisted therapy was that some of the noise, as it was cleared out, I could recognize, see, appreciate, embrace, connect with a lot of what was happening at a subconscious level. Um, again, it's a, it's a term we use as a throwaway term, subconscious, subliminal, whatever it might be. But to actually experience what that feels like is 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 quite remarkable um, yes. because it's there anyways. Yes, it's the kind of stuff that pops up in the odd dream yes. or, or whatever it might be. But we, yes. I don't think we have a sense that we have tools available to us to engage more meaningfully with that part of our our brain. Absolutely, I, th I think so. It's a lovely way to put it. Um, that that layer of perpetual thought, that that endless narrative, that is the defense mechanism against the subconscious mind or what mm. we would call the unconscious mind. Um, and that's necessary uh, from an evolutionary perspective. We can't always be bombarded with content. We can't be flooded by hidden impulses and urges. We wouldn't be able to function. Uh, so evolution selected against us always being connected to our unconscious mind. 
And um, certainly arduous experiences, traumatic experiences, that amplifies, it strengthens the defense. So if, if we have experienced trauma, we will be more prone to excessive rumination perpetually mm. because we're trying to stay out of the unconscious yeah. lest, lest we're traumatized by our, our own minds. So, and, and as you suggest, what, what the medicine does, well, what traditional therapy does is it, the idea is to slowly work through that defense mechanism and carefully integrate unconscious content into conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. And uh, psychedelics, uh, they, they afford no such caution. They, they obliterate the defense mechanism yeah, very yeah. quickly. Yeah. So there's a surge of unconscious content into conscious awareness. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages to that. Sure. Um, the unconscious component of our mind is a reservoir of hidden content, which could be traumatic, but it, it, there could also be deep, deep insights into ourselves. There could be aspects of ourselves that have been lost or suppressed through trauma that we need to recover. This is why we use the word recovery. We talk mm. about healing and recovery. We're literally going in and recovering aspects of self that had to be lost in order to cope with trauma. Hence the need for a very careful, rigorous therapeutic framework within which to do this. Mm. Um, psychologists have long cautioned that our defense mechanisms were put in place for a reason in early sure. childhood to protect us from trauma. Um, it's hence, a perfectly natural response to abnormal circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I want to maybe drill down into my personal experience because I think anecdotally it's quite powerful to hear about how um, – and everybody's journey is different and everybody's um, experience, I think, is unique. And that's what part of what makes this um, so uh, intriguing and so special and so personal. Um, but I came to the equanimity community really because I felt like I'd run out of options. And I'd had a very kind of superficial, limited uh, breathwork experience with a, a mutual friend of ours, Renan Ayres, also been a guest on this podcast. And I guess... I came to the community very much as a skeptic. Um, you know, what is this newfangled new age <laughs> stuff? And is it really going to have the same sort of impact? And I have been in therapy for over a decade. Um, I have been prescribed medications, you know, traditional Western medications that in some cases helped me, but in some cases I think maybe didn't help me uh, for, for a variety of reasons. And I've spoken about that on, on the show uh, quite a lot. But my, you know, the first thing that I think surprised me was my initial conversation with one of your colleagues was, you know, this starts with therapy. And I was like, I've done, I've done that. <laughs> I've been through that process. But uh, what surprised me was differently to my, what I understood to be a, a typical experience of therapy is we started very intentionally. We were, yes. we were into, because of what we knew we were going to do together and because we knew that psychedelic assisted journey was our sort of, uh, the catalyst that we were going to engage in together. We very much wanted to get to the right questions. Yes. yes. You know, the questions that I needed to ask because no doubt, as you said, when you open the deluge of of the psychedelic experience, it's going to follow the intention that you yes. set. Now, can, what yes. what is that? Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how therapy helps you get to that intention? Yes. Um, well, as as you suggest, from from the beginning of the therapeutic, from the preparation process, one is invited to do quite a deep dive into your psychobiography, into what we call your life story. We want to get insight into 
what are some of the key experiences, key early relationships, later relationships, moments of success, moments of trauma, moments of transition, inflection points, existential, big existential transitions in your life that have contributed to shaping who you are today. Because in as much as we like to think that we can lock the past away and, and just move forward, and, and there is, there's value in that. There's value in not being ensnared by the past or sure. a victim to the past. But before we can look forward, we have to first look back. We have to know where we need to put our put our intention and our focus in in this journey and so we use this this life story pro- process to get deep insight into the roots of one's depression one's anxiety one's addiction we view these all these psychiatric diagnoses we view them as symptoms mm. as symptoms of trauma and there is a further layer beneath trauma and we would we would call that loss Hmm. Ultimately, at the heart of all trauma is some kind of loss, not necessarily the loss of a person, but the loss of a vision of reality, a loss of trust in reality, a loss of a component of ourselves, Hmm. a loss of trust in ourselves. And so what we're aiming to do in the psychedelic journey is essentially grieve those losses, recover lost aspects of self. But in order to know what we need to focus on, we need a sense of, of where you've come from. And, and what experiences you've had that have impacted your life. So we move from a process of, of exploring life story and that quite organically setting intentions follows from that. And then we undergo various additional preparation processes before, before one goes into the journey, practical preparation components like equipping you with mindfulness-based real-time tools to mm. help you navigate the experience more comfortably, more confidently. And that would broadly cover the preparation phase. I mean, in addition, I mean, the very first step, of course, is very careful screening to rule out any contraindication. Of course, of course. So, what what types of people should not consider psychedelic assisted, assisted therapy as a as a healing journey? It's it's really important, as we suggested earlier. What psychedelics do is they create an enormous amount of neuroplasticity mm-hmm. in the brain. This is the brain's capacity to change in response to experience. Mm-hmm. Now, there are certain populations of people who already have too much plasticity. Mm-hmm. These are people who have a history of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's been diagnosed with, with schizophrenia or delusional disorder, uh, this also includes people with bipolar disorder, bipolar mm-hmm. 1 disorder, mm-hmm. um, subject to, to mania. And people with certain severe personality disorders, things like borderline personality disorder. In all these conditions, uh, the, the, the psyche is already somewhat too labile and mm. too neuroplastic, mm. and we don't want to aggravate that further. Mm. Um, so, so on the psychological front, those are the main red flags. Uh, physiologically, we're, we're often looking out for people with Severe cardiac illness, uh, severe untreated hypertension. Mm-hmm. The reason is because during the, the psychedelic journey, there can be a temporary, albeit gentle rise in blood pressure, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing extreme, but that can aggravate those conditions if they're poorly, poorly managed. So, so we're generally ru- ruling out those conditions. But for, for people whose thought processes have become stuck and rigid and are prone to anxiety or depression or addiction, the temporary entropy created in the brain by the psychedelic is very, very good medicine. We need to create more neuroplasticity in, mm. in those conditions. Mm. So, 
Okay, so what does an intention sound like? Is it a is it a mantra? Is it a sentence? Is it a what, what is it? Lovely question. An intention is, in a sense, a goal that one sets as to what one would like to get out of the experience, but. It's important not to clutch to an intention like one would clutch to an expectation. Mm. So it's a, it's a loose connection to something you would like to get out of this process. And it normally takes the form of one sentence. We, we often advise people to set one intention, one clear intention per journey, mm-hmm. not to not have more than one. And ideally the intention is something that can be actioned. After the journey, something that can become practical. And the formulation that, that we like to use, the way we like to language it is we like to invite people to say, at the end of my journey, I would like to arrive at a place where I, and then they get to fill in the blank. Hmm. And sometimes what that means is I would like to arrive at a place where I can heal and recover from this particular trauma, hmm. or I can establish a more compassionate relationship to myself, hmm. or I can get further insight into my relationship with my father or whatever it is. Um, so, so it's a, something clear, something actionable and, and something meaningful, most importantly. Could it be something as, as practical as at the end of this journey, I'd like to arrive at a point where I'm not as reliant on smoking. Could it be something like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Those, the, the, that's, those are very common types of intentions that we hear in these spaces. Okay. So what I'd love to do is maybe, I mean, one of, one of the more, I suppose, funny, um, experiences of the early part of my, my first journey was, um, I remember a moment often, often, as you mentioned earlier on, there's this experience of awe and of being very connected to something bigger, which is, I think people who are, um, spiritually or religiously oriented often feel yes. deeply connected to their beliefs in those moments. Yes. Um, whereas I got a sense that I was kind of meeting my mind for the yes. first time at a very deep level, which sure. was really cool. And I remember having a conversation with my mind, yes. as weird as that will sound yes. to people that are listening. Yes. <laughs> um, but almost having a kind of, okay, look, I'm a little nervous about this and this is my first time. And yes. if you could be kind of gentle with it, <laughs> it's hilarious because it, it seemed perfectly normal at the time in the the, in the experience, but there is this really powerful sense of objectivity where you, yes. for lack of a better phrase, and this was something that along with quicksand in the, in the 1980s that I was always yeah. very worried would happen to me one day, but yes. um, <laughs> the sense of kind of astral, I'm, I'm removed from myself yes. in a sense. I can observe yes. Yes. myself from a different perspective and yes. it's very difficult to explain that to people without it sounding yes. weird and shuar but yes. what is making that happen How, why do I have that kind of experience what is this sort of dissociative mechanism that leads to that that kind of experience it's a it's a very difficult question to answer mm. the truth is we don't know exactly how and why that is it just seems to be so that there is a quality of conscious experience that is uncoupled from thought. Many mystical traditions, like Buddhism, for example, have alluded to this. Mm. And they, they'll talk about the compassionate witness. They'll talk about being able to drop back and observe and be an observer and notice experience. Mm. Almost as if that there's almost as if there's a part of the mind that is pristine, that is that is uncontaminated by mm. thought and narrative and concepts and meaning. What that is, is 
fundamentally mysterious. Mm. From, a, from a neuroscientific scientific perspective, we don't know what that is, but the only way that we could explain it is that as a consequence of the increase in synaptic density and the, the, the cultivation of these new pathways, you're, you're accessing different corners of your mind, mm. different components of your subjective experience, and that seems to be one of them. Mm, mm. But it, it's, it's the jury is still out as to what exactly that is. But as you suggested earlier, there are other ways of accessing it through meditation, through breath work, and through traditional talk therapy. Traditional talk therapy, part of the objective is to be able to step back and notice your reactions, notice your experience, almost as if there's something prior to reaction and thought and concepts and meaning. Um, it's a little bit like if I bang my elbow on the table, I feel a physical pain in mm. my elbow. I feel throbbing and warmth and tingling. But at no point do I start heaping concepts and meaning onto it. Sure. It's, un it's, it's not typical it's of stimulus me. Stimulus response. Like, stimulus yeah. re it's, it's untypical for me to, s to start saying, um, Ooh, there's pain. There's pain, and I'm a weak person for feeling this, and this reminds me of that time with my father when, and this pain in my elbow means that something terrible is about to happen. But when it comes to emotional discomfort, we do that. We, mm. we, we move straight into concepts, and, and we heap meaning. And what meditation and psychedelics are trying to do is, is to, to teach us to step back and observe before we start telling a story about our experience and in a psychedelic journey you can quite literally as you as you suggested almost quite objectively encounter that part of your mind mm. um, and that can be intriguing and blissful and and peaceful and and somewhat perplexing at mm. the same time yeah my sense was also this this um and again understanding how this works and why it works is quite difficult but the sense of self um, dissolving, you know, the more limited my experience of the world is, the more unhealthy I'm feeling. I tend to be very much a victim of my emotions, of my feelings, of my experience of the world. Everything feels like it's happening to me yes. without my control. Um, yes. And one of the things that I felt happened, and this might not be true for everyone, but certainly through my ex experience of psychedelic journeys was, first of all, a sense of my body being quite like I could see my feeling or see my sense I could see my sense of smell I could <laughs> of, again weird and very difficult to explain to people but I could yes. observe yes. that response and I could and then then that starts to happen with your thoughts yes yes and then you and I think as a byproduct of that dissolving of a sense of ego of a sense yes. of self yes almost the natural byproduct of that is an observational reality where I'm like oh okay yes. there's me uh, that's kind of cool um, and that's surprising at first, yeah. but I think what I realized in subsequent journeys is that you can begin to curate that yes. and yes. that can be very powerful because absolutely. if you've never experienced it before, it's just a, whoa, absolutely. that's, that's amazing and weird and strange and sometimes scary. But then you can go, oh, but hold on. If I'm almost like a lucid dream, Ab absolutely. I can control some of this, not yes. control, but I can yes. guide and yes. curate and collaborate with yes. this process so that yes. it goes to places that, that I might not have considered accessible before. Yeah. Absolutely. It's beautifully put. Um, we often say that there's four layers of the subjective experience of, of a psychedelic trip. The, the, the most surface layer, the uppermost layer is the, the sensory layer where you experience a, a far richer sensorium of colors and sounds and shapes mm, and yeah. what you described as synesthesia, mm. you know, tasting color or mm. smelling sound. One layer deeper 
is sometimes referred to as the psychodynamic layer. Here, you're having an encounter with your psychobiography, events from your past, early experiences, relationships. This can often be the site of of encountering trauma, Mm. but it can also be um, a space where you feel immense gratitude and nostalgia and and a love that you haven't been able to access for people in your life and for yourself, hopefully, too. One that is certainly my experience. Yeah. Right, right. And one layer deeper is sometimes referred to as the archetypal layer. Here you seem to encounter symbols and animals and archetypes from the whole pantheon of, of Jungian mythology, Jung, what they call Jungian, Jungian archetypes. And these encounters feel symbolic and loaded with meaning. And one layer deeper is what you've just described, is the fourth layer is what they call the mystical integral layer. And these are experiences of oceanic boundlessness, or what they call oceanic merging, mm. or dissolution of the ego, where there's a loss of sense of self, um, with almost a coalescence of subject and object. You, you almost feel like you're a drop merging with the ocean, becoming nothing and everything at once. Yes. And that yeah. can be disconcerting, but it can also be completely awe-inspiring. Sure. What's really interesting about experiences of oceanic merging or ego death or ego dissolution, uh, which, which many mystical traditions describe as the fundamental mystical experience, is that people who have such experiences show have better outcomes in terms of data and measurement, especially for addicts. Um, it seems to be the case that the only thing more rewarding for the addicted brain is an experience of merging into something larger than yourself. Hmm. And um, uh, for, for intractable, it's also the, the kind of the ontological shock of have, having an experience like that, yes. the existential shock of having that sort of experience. For intractable conditions like treatment-resistant depression, eating disorders, severe OCD, severe addiction, you know, conditions where your neural pathways have almost become like iron cables in your cortex and you can't, shift tracks this this existential shock through that oceanic merging and loss of self seems to be the only thing that that catalyzes neurogenesis and plasticity so very very valuable those mystical types experiences so we've alluded to some of the some of the different medicines that are options for people that are interested in um, an integrated psychedelic assisted uh, healing journey some of those medicines are illegal and for yes. very good reason. Yes. Um, some of them have be either been misused or are, are widely misunderstood. Yes. And so for whatever reason, yes. there are some um, medicines that, that aren't legal uh, to engage in. It certainly wouldn't be legal for you to um, administer to patients. And so what happens with, I think, a lot of people's experience of this, even with the best intentions, is that they'll go off somewhere to <laughs> to plet uh, <laughs> and they'll find a, in inverted commas a shaman who will yeah. and there can be good versions of that and there can be also very bad versions of that yes. because for whatever reason um, the best the best uh, tools and characteristics and understandings that come through the western medicine yeah. channel yeah. that couple very well with the best understanding and practices in the Eastern, you know, yes. broadly speaking, the kind of yes. uh, psychedelic assisted channel um, are absent. And so yes. there's not enough integration work. There's not enough yes. prep work. And a lot of people can have a bit of a hit and miss experience there. Yes. 
So we're not going to go into depth about those because I don't know that that's useful. There is certainly some exciting developments on that front and there's a lot of studies being done and, and certainly even at, a, at the highest levels, I know that, that there's quite a lot of documentation around studies that have been done in the UK and in the US around the feasibility of, of deeper clinical trials. Yes. Um, uh, but that's probably for an entire different show. Yes, There is a perfectly legal, perfectly safe, uh, perfectly accessible psychedelic uh, assisted therapy option. We've spoken about it. It's ketamine. Yes. Some people will hear the word ketamine and go, hold on, isn't that a drug that they use in like Camden? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is ketamine? Why has it been so revolutionary? And yes. then maybe we can talk a little bit about what the typical ketamine infusion experience looks like. Yes, indeed. Um, I've come to learn that people's first association to ketamine is also as a uh, a horse tranquilizer. Yes, and, that's uh, the other one I've had to throw it at me. I'm like, sure. And I have a dad joke to share about that. So okay, please share, please share quickly. Uh, uh, it's a meme and there's a horse on it and it says, ketamine, just say nay. Okay, <laughs> it's wonderful. Yes, yeah, it's a dad, very dad joke. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, okay. So ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic medicine that was first synthesized in the 1960s mm-hmm. by a very conservative a professor of chemistry named Kelvin Stevens. Mm-hmm. Ketamine was synthesized as an alternative to something called fencyclidine, which people will know as PCP, mm-hmm. because it had a better safety profile. It put less pressure on the on the cardiac system. What is PCP used for at the time? Uh, for anesthesia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ketamine uh, in the 70s was quickly FDA approved. Uh, it was added to the World Health Organization's list of what they call essential medicines. Very safe, widely used for both children and adults in hospital settings for the purposes of anesthesia. In the year 2000, a group of really creative, really smart trailblazing neuropsychiatrists figured out that if you administered what they call a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine, one-tenth of an anesthetic dose, to patients who were struggling with treatment-resistant depression, sometimes suicidal depression, they would experience rapid remission of symptoms, rapid and robust relief from their depressive symptoms within a day, sometimes within hours. Mm. So this was absolutely astonishing completely jaw-dropping it, it was it was the kind of thing where participants in these preliminary studies were, were phoning the researchers the next day and saying my depression's gone you know like what what did you do like what, I, happened? I can, yeah. what happened i can see color again i can feel my emotional range has expanded i'm accessing thoughts and awarenesses that just haven't been there for for years and the, the researchers were as astonished as, as the patients. They did not expect this. So just a quick one, Brad. So, so anybody who's ever had a general anesthetic kind of dosage in, in a hospital setting for an op or whatever, I mean, it's, it's obviously nobody's favorite thing. Knocks you out completely. You have no idea what's going on around. And then there's always that horrible coming out of that general anesthetic yes. period where you're yes. disoriented and uncomfortable. I remember having my wisdoms out and being... Yeah really like violent and angry and traumatized and like rageful coming out of that thing because i suppose you're going through all of these uh these things after having just been um kind of literally physically abused on the the table um so we're not talking about like a general anesthetic i'm out for the count i have no idea it's just a as you said it's a sub yes and and so am i completely aware 
while that's been administered. Yes. Okay. 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 Yes. At, at this sub-anesthetic level, it places the brain into the liminal space, the in-between space between wakefulness and sleep, mm-hmm. what's sometimes referred to as a hypnagogic state. Mm-hmm. And in that hypnagogic state, subjectively, you can have very similar experiences as one would have on other psychedelic medicines. Mm-hmm. And if you scan someone's brain at that very low dose of ketamine and you scan someone's brain on psilocybin, it'll look very, very similar. Uh, so, so no, you're not sedating people. There's this narrow window. Too much, you put people to sleep. Too little, nothing happens. People say, like, I want my money back. Nothing's happening. <laughs> uh, but if, but in that liminal window, you induce a deep, deep psychedelic journey, which, which can be incredibly profound. Mm. And as you, as you highlighted, we're talking about uh, one tenth of the dose that a child might get under okay. anesthetic. So, okay. very, very safe, safe yeah. very well tolerated. Yeah. Okay, so people who connect with equanimity with the center saying, I'm suffering from anxiety, I'm dealing with um, grief, whatever it might be, I want to go on a journey. What does the typical engagement look like and how does ketamine fit into that engagement? Absolutely. So the first step, once they've reached out, would be to set up an initial consultation where we can learn more about what they're su- what they're struggling with what what is the nature of their suffering mm-hmm. what are their symptoms and then to map out a treatment program an intervention tailored to their presentation if ketamine is indicated for this particular person the first step would be a medical screening just to rule out medical contraindications mm-hmm. which we discussed earlier and from there, we would move quite actively into the psychological preparation, yeah. going deeply into life story, setting intentions, and equipping people with the practical mind- mindfulness-based tools as, as to how to navigate the journey comfortably. From there, one would have have a ketamine infusion, a ketamine journey, which lasts 50 minutes. And the general protocol for ketamine is quite different to other the classic psychedelics, um, in the classic psychedelics, you're having one big, big high-dose journey, which can mm-hmm. last six hours, eight hours, 12 hours, depending on the medicine. Ketamine is a shorter journey, but one has multiple journeys over six weeks, over three to six weeks. So the, the, the magic um, number seems to be between three and six infusions, depending on what you're presenting with. So you, you experience this 50-minute psychedelic journey in this beautiful, safe, contained, clinically regulated setting. And following the journey, in, in the days following, you would move into integration therapy. This is the most crucial component of, of the entire process, and this is what positions us away from non-empirically based or, or, or shamanic models of mm. treatment. Uh, we invest most of our time and energy in the therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we really just we, we use the ketamine to create some neuroplasticity to heat up that clay. Now we want to mold it in, in the right direction. There's this misconception in in psychedelic circles that the goal of of psychedelic medicine is to create neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity in and of itself is not a good thing. Sure, uh, sure. we we want goal directed plasticity. It's not a good thing any more than a lump of wet clay is a good thing. Hundred percent. So the integration therapy is the molding of that clay, um, where we're exploring how to take the epiphanies and insights and moments of transcendence that you've had in the ketamine journey and translate it into some kind of meaningful and lasting behavior change because our, our lives change. We heal and recover when we change what we do. 
not, we, we don't change through ideas or epiphanies or, or concepts. We, we have to change our behavior. Mm. And ultimately, the ketamine is simply just a catalyst for behavior change, ultimately. So once you've had the journey, you move into integration, and then you'd have a follow-up journey a few days later, and then integrate again. So you're coupling integration and journey each week in, in this kind of way. Um, and it, in that sense, um, we, we sometimes say that a ketamine journey is like listening to the greatest hits of your mind. A psilocybin journey is like listening to the, the full album and something longer like ayahuasca is like the triple box set and you can't <laughs> skip any tracks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you spoke earlier on about the retreat setting and I know that the center has been designed with multiple facilities and spaces that uh, you've got. I know that you're hosting breathwork sessions there. You're hosting yoga, uh, meditation, a, a variety of, I like to think of it as a suite, a yes. tool set, yes. right? Of things that I can access that may or may not work better yes. for me as an individual, wherever I am in my journey or whatever it is that I've been exposed to. I had the very fortunate experience of, of going through the five-day retreat experience or sort of off-site retreat, uh, retreat experience with you guys. Yes. And I remember you taught specifically some breath. We did some cold immersion yes. experiences as well, which was, yes. you know, uh, mildly traumatic. Uh, <laughs> but one of the, one of the funnier anecdotes from my actual journey experience, um, and I'm not sure if I ever told you this, but mm. uh, I certainly did tell, tell Ant is mm. that in the tougher parts of, of the psychedelic, and we, we set some pretty big intentions and I wanted to do some tough work. So I wasn't surprised that there were yes. parts of the journey that were going to be harder to sure. navigate. Sure. Um, but I was willing and I was interested in, and I, and I wanted to, I was curious about yes. that uh, part of the journey, yes. but I remember employing some of the tools yes. and my experience in the journey was that you were there with me yes. uh, Brad was next to me Brad was helping me with the breath work and your hand was on my chest literally kind of helping me modulate uh, my breathing and Anthony was talking to me about this is the work that we're here to do and just you know and I uh, afterwards I said to Anthony man I'm sorry that like there was a lot and like uh, you know <laughs> I, I feel like I was all over the place and I'm, you know, I'm really grateful you guys are there because I don't know how I would have done it without you. And he said to me, what are you talking about? I was like, no, like you and Brad and what? And he's like, we had nothing. You would lay there like a m mummy for four hours, did not move a muscle, did not move an inch. And what was so empowering to me was the sort of realization that I had by sort of, you know, I'd used you in the session, uh, you guys as proxies for my yes. own healing and my own therapy. So what was encouraging about it was I learned that I could go away and employ those tools in other yes. situations. So for me, the integration experience has been the continued growth and refinement yes. and yes. re-employment of yes. those strategies in other circumstances. Yes. Yes. Um, often remembering quite fondly that, that experience because, yes. yeah, I mean, I was pretty convinced at the time that you guys were dragging <laughs> me through, whereas it was actually just me. But I'm sure different people have different experiences, yes. uh, wildly different experiences based on their um, own personal personal yes. um, exposure yes. question i'd want to ask you is um and not wanting to limit at all who whoever it is that is listening um that might be interested in in, in um, engaging with you and, and, yes. and the broader equanimity team is there such a thing as a, like an ideal candidate is there somebody that is kind of if you said if you're feeling that if you're in this kind of space right now yes is there a sort of profile that you think is better suited to this kind of um, healing journey than than others. 
Yes. Uh, fortunately, ketamine is such a versatile medicine that the, the kind of candidate that would really benefit from it is actually quite diverse. Mm. We find that people on the clinical spectrum from mild to moderate to leaning into the severe category benefit enormously from this process. On the other hand, people who are functioning really well in life but are looking for more, are mm. seeking more meaning, are seeking a better quality of conscious experience, mm. are seeking to burn 10% brighter in their relationship with their partner, they benefit enormously as well. Absolutely. So yeah. it's, it's, it's an incredibly versatile medicine. And I think this has much to do with what we were saying about these medicines being context dependent mm. and, and, uh, they're sometimes referred to as meaning response magnifiers. Whatever mm. meaning you go in with, it'll amplify and magnify that. So I wish I could paint a profile of the the ideal person, but, but it is in fact quite broad in that sense. I, I think that's a great point though, and I, I probably have not made enough effort to speak to that because certainly, you know, when I talk to people about my therapeutic journey, um, one of the misconceptions around therapy is that it's about fixing stuff. And I suppose that that's your only expectation. It can be very frustrating. Yes. Um, and yes. that's not to suggest that therapy hasn't fixed things for some people, yes. but yeah. for me, it was really about finding stuff. It uh, was yeah. asking better questions, oh, um, yes. getting to, getting past some of the, um, uh, the veils of kind of, you yes. know, the curtains of yes. complexity and into, into more meaningful thinking and, yes. and certainly question answering. And I think that's a great point around psychedelic assisted therapies. It's not just there to fix stuff. Exactly. It's also about enrichment and growth and development and improvement. Absolutely. And, I mean, I, I've committed to uh, on an annual basis. I've got a little anniversary in my diary and I go through a process and there's intention setting that's part of that. And if it's not right, I, I won't do it. I'm not beholden to it. Sure. But sure. I think I've understood that the work that happens before these types of experiences, the integration that happens afterwards, if it's deliberate, yes. if it's intentional, if I commit to it like I would committing to a personal training regime at a gym, yes. there is this kind of compounding yes. benefit over right. time. Absolutely. Just as for many people, anxiety and depression tends to compound in the other direction. Absolutely. This is the work that prevents um, slipping into that kind of foggy state again. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's as much a pursuit of growth as it is an addressing of, yes. of in some cases, brokenness or pain or Absolutely. suffering. Yeah. It's such a, a valuable point. Um, because the, f the fact is that, that all of us, whether we're high functioning and we're looking to break through or transcend, expand our creativity, deepen our awareness, expand our consciousness, or whether we're struggling with a, a mental health affliction that we need to heal and recover from, we all carry ideas and insights that we know rationally and intellectually, but that we can't imbibe viscerally and we mm -hmm. can't action. We can't act on them. What the psych what happens in the psychedelic journey is that we feel insights with the force of an emotion. So it becomes a matter of, you know, as anyone who's a therapist or who, who's been a client in therapy, which includes me, of course, we all know what it's like to sit in a therapy space and say to our therapist, rationally, 
I know what you mean. Mm. Intellectually, I know that I'm not completely worthless, mm. but I can't feel it in my body and I can't act on it. There's this yeah. enormous bifurcation between my head and my heart. Mm. And what, what the psychedelic journey does is it coalesces that, mm. that bifurcation. And it allows us to feel truths with the force of an emotion. In Roland Griffith's famous smoking cessation study, many of his participants said, and, and these are responses that I've heard from addicts that I've worked with too, they've said, for the first time, I could feel what the alcohol was doing to my body or the cigarettes were doing to my body. Um, doctors have told me, my therapist has told me, I've read the data, none of it moves me because I'm still stuck in my head. I have this abstract relationship to to the truth of what I'm doing to myself. Yes, yes. But in the journey, I could feel it physically. Mm. And it became so repugnant. And it became as obvious as a poke in the eye yeah. that following that journey, I could not even conceive of pouring toxins down my throat again. Mm. The same way that I would never pour toxins down my, my child's throat. Yeah. I wouldn't do it to me. When we can feel what we're doing, we stop doing it. The way we remove our hand from a hot stove. Feeling is... The, the, the primary mover of human experience. It's not abstraction or intellect, intellectualization. And I think the reason why these medicines are so helpful for such a, a diverse category of people is because, you know, whether you're struggling with a mental health condition or you're half functioning, but you just want to deepen and transcend, we all have this fundamental problem of having a human mind, a mind that did not evolve to make us happy, but that evolved for survival. And it just so happens that you know, whether you've been traumatized or not, whether you've suffered from specific trauma or not, perpetually worrying about the future and ruminating the past is a great survival strategy. It's a terrible strategy for happiness and calm and equanimity. Mm. So by virtue of having a mind, one can benefit from these substances and these experiences. Brad, for people who are listening and are really intrigued by what the center does, but maybe aren't ready to kind of jump into a long-term or a longer or a medium-term commitment, there are other ways that they can interact with the center, right? So we spoke about some of the classes and yes. sessions that are hosted. Yes. I also know that there's a day-long, for lack of a better phrase, mini retreat. Yes. Uh, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And Absolutely. The, the day retreat is a distillation of the five-day program that we that we take people on in other geographies it is a, a, an integration of our framework mm -hmm. so it'll, it'll essentially take you from start to finish through our entire therapeutic framework which includes working on your life story setting an intention um, doing yoga doing breath work i mean these of course are all mindfulness-based practices that teach you to lean in with curiosity and openness and compassion and learn to, as we were saying observe, earlier, observe your experience without react reactivity and without judgment. There is a, a breathwork component. There's a cold exposure component as well. Cold exposure achieves the same thing via different means. So, so all the best is essentially our greatest hits compressed into one day. Yeah. And it, it culminates with a psychedelic journey in the form of a, a ketamine infusion. Mm. So we take people through through the journey and uh, they feel entirely prepared for the psychedelic experience by the end of the day. And then we host an integration circle the next day where we, we begin to piece together and make sense and, and help people translate what they experienced into some kind of change that they can, that can last, essentially. How do people reach you guys? Where do they find you? What do they search for? How can they connect with you to find more info? The best thing is to go to equanimitywellness.coza. Uh, that's uh, 
E- I can't even spell the word. E-Q-U-A-N-I-M-I-T-Y, wellness, one word, dot coza. Awesome. Brad, I, you know, I say this to every guest that I have on the show. Thank you for being um, so generous with your time. Um, your time is valuable, literally. But more than that, I like just on a very personal level, and the work that you and the team do has been literally life-saving for me, literally transformative. So, you know, I'm just very grateful for your courage as a team. You guys have stepped out and done some really remarkable, um, really groundbreaking things. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, I get really excited about what that work might mean for others in the future. So thank you again. Yeah, and I wish you nothing but the best for for the months and years to come. Thank you so much, Mike. That, that really is incredibly meaningful, and it's uh, been an absolute honor to... Uh, walk some of your journey with you and uh, I really appreciate you. Thanks my friend. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer and public speaker deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.